Hello, and welcome to another episode of A Little Spooky. This is the show where we talk about things that spook us just a little bit, like cryptids, aliens, UFOs, conspiracy theories, or walking past a group of teenagers. My name is Colleen. My name Everett. How's it going? Pretty good. Do teenagers scare you as much as they scare me? They're always telling me that, like, you know, your clothes are bad, your hair is bad. How often do you come in You're contact old. with teenagers? That I don't tell know. You I'm, I get afraid when I see groups of them. <laughs> <laughs> like they're plotting something? Yeah, I, they're just, they're mean. I'm sure we have many teenagers listening to this now, and I'm just going to go on the record and say, you don't scare me, but <laughs> I also don't care. Colleen apparently hates you. Sorry. I don't hate you. I just want Whoopsies. you to like me. <laughs> I don't want you. Just please like me. All right. What are we talking about? Well, Colleen, we've had episodes before where we kind of talk about like a, a grouping of things. Like, you know, every society has like a vampire-esque story, mm-hmm. it seems at least. Or a different version of sleep paralysis versus nightmare Versus everything else similar. Right, right. And I feel like this episode might open a can of worms. Because we're going to talk about worms. (laughs) 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 Now, I just want to say, and we're going to talk about three main worms today. But it's surprising how many monster worms are in existence across the entire world. Worms are gross. Worms are scary. They're so alien compared to mammals. They're like... (laughs) No way. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) They're like bald, squishy, Sometimes have like two heads or whatever. And they're just a tube. I mean, like there is nothing farther... Well, fish are pretty, pretty wacky. But at least they have eyes and a mouth. There's like nothing farther removed from a human being than a worm. I won't touch one. And you know what? They're like gross when they they are all squishy after it rains. And then they get all like crispy when they dry out. It's disgusting. Stop it. You're making it sound appetizing. (laughs) Squishy, but then a little crispy after a while. Well, yeah, we're we're talking about some worms today. And I want to just start off with the one we've already talked about. Okay. If this is your first episode or you just recently started the podcast, one of our very early episodes, we had a what I called a cryptid battle extravaganza. Mm-hmm. And one of the contestants in that tourney was the Mongolian death worm. I believe it won. Spoilers. Oh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> anyway. I, you didn't hear anything. We, we won't spend too much time on it because we've <laughs> talked about it already, but just to kind of have it fit in here. The Mongolian death worm is a creature that lives underground in the Gobi Desert. When it's directly translated, it translates to large intestine worm because of its appearance. I mean, don't all worms look like intestines? There's something specific about this one. So in 1992, or excuse me, 1922, Mongolian Prime Minister Damdin Bazar. Hmm, I like it. Actually gave a description of the worm. Like he saw it. I don't know if he's saying he saw it, but he gave an official description of the worm. Like the government description? Well, he specifically did. Okay. He says, and this is a direct translated quote, It is shaped like a sausage about two feet long, has no head nor leg, and it is so poisonous that merely to touch it means instant death. 
It lives in the most desolate parts of the Gobi Desert. Okay, so aren't there like wormy, wormy fish things that are pretty much that? Like if you touch it, you die? You mean in general? Yeah. I don't know about that specific geographic area, but yeah, no, for not sure. No, not in the Gobi Desert. I guess I'm just talking about, like, that's not it is completely far-fetched. It's not I mean, completely, it's a big old worm. Yeah, it's not completely far-fetched. I think the scary thing is the area that it's located in, because it's just a like a wasteland landscape and just in the middle of the desert, and then suddenly one can just appear and kill you. Yeah, it's like Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, Mongolian legend describes the creature as traveling underground so quickly that it creates waves of sand on the surface which allow it to be detected. And it is said to kill at a distance, either by spraying a venom at its prey or by means of electric discharge. And we talked a lot about that in our tourney episode. Yeah. But it can not only be poisonous to the touch, but it can spit venom and also maybe shock you like an electric eel. Badass. I would not want to be touched by it. Well, I mean, I don't want to die, but worms gross me out in general. So it doesn't even have to have that ability and I would still be scared by it. So a lot of people, a lot of locals, I should say, do believe in this. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Or especially in decades past, maybe not so much anymore. Sure. But uh, it was definitely a local legend that was very popular. The reason that it kind of was so easy to believe in is because they said it was a very rare occurrence to find one because it almost always is underground and only comes up to either eat or, you know, if there's something underground that it needs to go above. You know what this sounds like? Giant squid. Mm. Like everybody was like, that's not real. And then it turns out it is real. It's just, we don't go down deep enough to see them. We have to wait till they die and float to the surface and then luckily find one. And it's not too often people are exploring the Gobi Desert. Right. And we're not going underground. True. Well, it's rarely seen by locals, as I said, and they actively avoid worms when they do supposedly see them because they fear for their safety. Of course. Sure. And modern depictions of the worm say that it has a dark red color similar to blood. So Hmm. that's maybe why it gets the name large intestine worm. And it never gets larger than three feet. So for a giant worm creature, that's actually not too big. No. I mean, there are real earthworms bigger than three feet in existence. This doesn't sound okay. The electric impulsy thing sounds a little bit like they're just adding on extras to it but it doesn't seem that far-fetched at all i mean maybe like i mean the the poisonous thing and the electric yes that seems a little far-fetched but in modern depictions also it's depicted to have spikes on both ends on both ends yes like it's just pointy it's got like spiky protrusions from each end so it's hard to tell whether it's a head or the end Oh, okay, okay. Like a, like a lot of caterpillars do sure, that. Sure, I'm yeah. just picturing a tube with two with a spike on each end, and to me, that's just a pointy tube. No, not just one spike. <laughs> right, I think I there's it. a protrusion of several spikes. I got it. I got it. I got it. So this is something we didn't talk about in the uh, previous episode. We were talking about the death worm in 1990, and also again in 1992, a man by the name of Ivan Mackerel led small expeditions into the Gobi Desert to search for the worm. And he was inspired by 
Frank Herbert's novel Dune, which is now, of course, the extremely popular movie. Nice. In which a giant fictional sandworm can be brought to the surface by rhythmic thumping. So I, I, you, I'm, I know you haven't seen the movie. I don't know if you've read the book. I have not. But I think the idea is if you have a mechanism that's strong enough to send like shock pulses into yeah. the ground, it will attract it to the surface. Isn't that true of regular worms? Maybe. I have no idea. I guess I don't. It sounds familiar, but I also could be completely wrong. So Mackerel was inspired by this. So he actually created his own device. It was a motor-driven, uh, what he called thumper, and I think that's straight from Dune, too. And he used small explosions as well to try and rise these death worms to the surface. Hmm. These searches in 1990 and 1992, as well as several other searches by others since then, ended in failure. Now, the Gobi Desert is a large place. Yes. It would be... I. I doubt that these worms would be located across the entirety of the desert. You kind of have to, like, would know where a pocket of wormies is. Well, so, I mean, you'd basically have to do this thumping across the entire desert. Maybe, maybe not. I, I mean, we're under the impression that this creature can move extremely fast underground. So it That's probably traverses the whole desert, I would imagine. But even so, uh, there's been no official sightings of the worm or evidence of its existence other than local legends. Now, my question is, it's a worm. It's not a snake. No. Don't like worms by nature need moisture so that they don't turn into little crispy French onion yeah. curls? Where's it getting all this enough there's, moisture? There's water to... deep underground. No so, like, how go. deep are we talking? Why would it ever come to the surface? Food, I would imagine. Maybe it just hates, like, lizards or something and wants to go to the surface to shock them occasionally. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. So that's enough of that Mongolian death worm. I we, like We've it. talked about you before. I do love the legend. And have, as I spoiled earlier, in a fight against pretty much every other cryptid, it would win. I mean, yeah. Like, it can not only send shocks and spit venom, but if it needs to hide, it just goes underground. Exactly. I guess it depends on the playing field. Even so, it's not the most interesting worm. I mean, I like it. I mean, I love it, but it's not the most interesting <laughs> one. All right. So impress me. Let's go as far from Mongolia as we can. Okay. Brazil. All right. I think that's like almost exactly halfway around the earth, I believe. I mean, they're very different countries. Very true. So so I probably will mispronounce this. I tried listening to some pronunciations, but I do not speak Portuguese, so I apologize. But there is a creature called the Minhoquau. Oh. It's a large earthworm-like cryptid that allegedly exists in the forests of South America. Okay. Lots of dead leaves. Lots of moisture in a forest. True. <laughs> it reportedly resembles a giant worm, but has scaly black skin, a readily visible mouth, and a pair of tentacle-like structures that come from its head. I imagine like antenna. So like a snake with antenna. And according to at least one eyewitness, it also has a pig snout. Like one of those bats? Those like pig snouty yeah, bats? Yeah, just like a little snouty thing at the end. That's not super weird description for like a snake. 
There's some snakes with some weird schnauzes. Yeah, lots, lots of like boas have like kind of not a snout, but like a little actual nose shape at the end. Yeah. So they're basically just describing a black snake with some sort of weird Possibly. antenna. So although this is primarily a creature that lives in the forest, it's also said to hang out in lakes and rivers, too. It has been reported to prey on large surface animals, including cattle, by suddenly capturing them from below the water. So a local Brazilian described the monster to a French naturalist in 1846, and this Frenchman was named Augustin Saint-Hilaire. And he said to him that the beast does not rise to the surface of the water, but that it causes animals to disappear by seizing them by the belly. So it is under the water, I imagine, in like a lake, and it just, if it senses like a cow or a sheep or something in the water, it will just immediately grab it by like wrapping around it and dragging it underwater to drown it. Oh, that's interesting because it must have some great pulling power if it's going to be dragging <laughs> something that large underneath. The I look, mean, like this got to be... <laughs> the look on Colleen's face when she said that, some great pulling power. <laughs> Just, I, <laughs> I can't keep myself underwater. Granted, I am not a water surviving being. You're not a water dweller. Right, but I imagine it would be very difficult for something the size of a snake to wrap itself around a cow and drag it underwater and keep it there. True. We'll get in we'll get into some theories about what this might be, but let's keep the snake in mind for now. Okay. So, it's thought to be a burrowing animal. It produces enormous trenches when it's traveling. And that is another reason that people hate this thing, not only because it kills cattle, maybe even a human or two occasionally, but it creates these trenches in the ground that causes ridiculous flooding to happen. Hmm. I'm sorry, can you remind me how big is this? Um, we haven't really talked about it because it kind of differs depending on who you hear it from. Sometimes it's like... I imagine it will be huge to make a big trench. Well, I mean, it can just burrow in general. Like, yeah. I mean, the Mongolian deathworm burrows, too, and it's only two feet long. Right, but you just mentioned huge trenches. Huge trenches, like, deep. Okay. Um, It can get to 75 to 150 feet deep. And uh, like I was going to say, too, that it kind of varies depending on where you hear this story from. But it can be anywhere from, like, 10 meters to, like, 50 meters. Some get ridiculously big. Okay. So it's kind of just a tall tale type thing. So there have been cases of houses and other man-made structures collapsing due to these trenches, and the rivers have their courses altered, allegedly due to the burrowing activity, and these tunnels most commonly appear after periods of rain, indicating that this creature is more active during rainy periods and might even keep itself hidden during the dry days. And the beast's tunnels will sometimes flood, creating new water bodies, like little tiny swamps and ponds and stuff. That seems a little far-fetched. For one animal to change the course of a river, create its own swamps. We'll go what humans do. Valid point, but I guess when you were describing it, you're making it seem as though one of these has the capability to cause that. I can't divert a river. 
you could if you tried hard enough. You I have to honestly believe. don't if I believed really hard. I there's just something a little bit like this sounds like it w- would be an explanation for like a natural phenomenon. Maybe that they just don't understand yet, or it could be a big ass snake. What do I know? Let's get into some theories. Okay. So, cryptozoologist Carl Schuker suggested that this might be either a descendant or an actual creature of old called, and I, I know I'm going to mispronounce this. We've learned about this in science class years ago, but it's I think it's called the Sicilian, like or Cassilian. It's basically just a huge amphibian. Okay. He thinks that it's one of the variety that are worm-like and limbless that are subterranean and aquatic, and they have tentacle-like sensory organs. Okay. Which would explain its appearance and its size and its activity. Sure. Uh, Most of these do inhabit the forests of South America, which would fit the description of the creature. However, they don't even begin to approach the actual supposed size of this beast. So these things do exist, but they're like kind of small compared to however big this worm thing is supposed to be. 10 to 50 meters. Possibly. Okay. Here's a little controversial theory. It could be a descendant of the extinct Titanoboa. So it's a old prehistoric serpent that lived in South America in the dinosaur period 60 million years ago. Mm -hmm. So this snake was about 50 feet in length and weighed estimated 2,500 pounds, and it's the largest snake to have ever existed on record, according to the fossil record. The theory is dismissed by both or most experts because this old snake creature lived 60 million years ago, and there's no way that it could have survived for this long and still suddenly just appear a couple centuries ago. What is that story of the fish that was like recently dis- rediscovered. Oh, the silica- coelacanth. Yeah, like the like, fossil fish. Or yes, whatever. It's and like nobody way. thought it was was around, and then they found one. Right? Could this be like that? I mean, that I thing mean, was around for millions of years. I guess anything is possible, but <laughs> the, <laughs> that the, the thing is, no. the thing is, anything that lives on land, well, even if it's like a freshwater creature, it would be so hard. For for it to just disappear and then reappear versus a sea creature where the sea is so vast and we can't explore everything. And a coelacanth is a deep water fish. Yeah, yeah no, you're right. I don't know. I feel like I sound like an idiot in this episode. I do too. It's okay. <laughs> this is an episode about worms. <laughs> worms are fun. They're interesting. They're so, spooky. So here's my theory. Okay. People probably just mistook an anaconda for a giant worm. Why wouldn't you just mistake a worm for an anaconda? Because you know an anaconda exists. If I saw something large and worm-like, I'd be like, whoa, a snake, not whoa, a mysterious worm that I don't think has been discovered yet. I completely agree with you. It's just the the reason I think this is because a lot of the things that anacondas can do are so similar to this. Like they can hunt in the water and drag down large beasts and like drown them um of course they don't burrow and like make flooding occur or anything like that Mm -hmm. but it's just a large ass snake that can kill small cattle yeah so i don't know 
That's my stupid un- uninformed theory. It's just very simple. I mean, yeah, that's that would make sense to me. It's just weird that someone would be like, that couldn't be an anaconda. That must be something undiscovered. Yeah. Or maybe it was just a really big anaconda, one that's bigger than normal. True. And then the legends have held to this day. But here's an interesting, fun fact about this. So the city of Sao Paulo in Brazil is home to a, a little over two mile long elevated highway that's named after the creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, this highway gets its name because the elevation above the city resembles a gigantic worm rising from the earth. Huh. That's pretty cool. So, yeah. It's been renamed since after a dictator, though. Rude. Yeah. Now, you know what's weird? This whole time I'm thinking about the thought of, like, the deep ocean is terrifying, right? Because it's essentially unexplored. There could be things down there we know nothing about. Mm-hmm. We just could discover new things anytime. They could be spooky, scary, bitey things. But nobody ever thinks about what could mysteriously be living directly under our feet. Crab people. Crab people. It's just, it's interesting because, like, I, of course, if you dropped me in the ocean, I'd be like, oh, hell no. But it's kind of the same if you stand in the middle of a big old field. How much shit's going on beneath you? <laughs> Especially if these worms exist. <laughs> I guess. I mean, worms, like actual earthworms, can get huge, too. Like, I've, oh. I've, I think they can get to like five feet long. Maybe I mean, even I, bigger. I don't know. I have no idea. And what's for sure. stopping them? They're just big old tubes with, with like a mouth on one end and a butthole on the other end. Is there like some sort of, aside from the pressure of, the 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 ground. That's why they're so malleable, so they can withstand. The That's pressure. what I mean. Like I feel you could nothing stopping you from becoming the world's biggest worm. Let's leave Brazil. Okay. Let's go up north, up okay. north to our area uh-huh. of the world. So I'm going to be kind of loosely using the term worm for this one, <laughs> but it acts very similar to the two previous worms we discussed. Okay. Hit me. It's called the snow wasset. Have you heard of it? Not in the slightest. The snow wasset is a huge animal, four times larger than a wolverine, and said to be 40 times as active. Okay, but when you say wolverine, I'm thinking of anything but a worm. Does this have legs and fur? Mm, we'll get there. So it's not a worm at no, all? No, no, we'll get there. <laughs> okay. Its habitat is migratory, okay. but unlike other animals, it spends most of the summertime asleep, hibernating, and it's much more active in the wintertime. It loves the cold temperatures and avoids heat at all costs. Okay. It spends the summer months up, up, up north in areas around Newfoundland and Labrador, and it migrates southward in the wintertime to the areas around the Great Lakes. Okay, I'm sorry, you said this was a cryptid? Mm-hmm. How do they have proof of its migratory patterns? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> so, in the summertime, it grows extremely small, short, but functional legs. Okay. Which are used to move from the sun and seek out shady and cooler spots for it to not die. So we're talking like caterpillar legs, like those little nubbins? Enough to... May allow it to move. Okay. 
I imagine kind of like maybe a salamander because it's got legs that can move. We're talking about like they're not just little nubbins then. They're legs, articulated legs with like knees and stuff. Yes, that allow it to move. It doesn't move much in the summer, but it allows it to move like from the sun to the shade when it needs to. Yuck. And it's said to like to hibernate in cranberry bogs. Okay, so Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of them in Wisconsin. Now, can I, where did this like originate? We're Is not this... done yet. Hold on. I'm we, just... will, we will talk about it. Okay. I promise. Okay. You're getting sorry. way too ahead of it. Sorry, sorry. Carry on. So when it hibernates, it likes to curl up together into a little green ring. Because did I mention it has green hair? In it's the summer. Hair. In the summer. So like grass? Yes. Camouflage. Summer's over. Summer is done. Winter has come. This is true. It's time to migrate. So what does it do? It sheds its legs off. Okay. No more legs. Worm now. All right. And it burrows like a serpentine predator, and it travels through snow. It loses its green color and becomes white, just like the snow. Okay. It migrates from up north, farther south, towards the Great Lakes, through the snow, catching animals when it can, anywhere from rabbits or, you know, birds, to wolves and deer and maybe even a human. So this is a large boy. Yes. Can it be anywhere between, I think usually it's said to be about 40 feet long, but it can get even bigger. There's tall tales of it being like 300 feet long. Oh, those are the tall tales? Mm-hmm. Now, there's a question that's been weighing heavily on my mind since yes. you started this. Yes. Why, if they love the cold, mm-hmm. why would they migrate south for the winter? Because it's still snowy and there's more activity farther south for hunting and heating. So, where the hell did this come from? We live in this area and I've never heard of this before. True. But we we get distracted by the hodag. That's by true. the Wendigo. Yep. We don't we don't have time for hairy grass-like worms that are only around here 50% of the time. They could deal with those in Labrador. The reason that we haven't heard of it is because this is a dead legend. Mm. Or at least dead recently. It's thought to have originated during the lumbering days. And of course those days aren't over, but they were much more Where a lot of the towns up here at least ones near rivers, originated as lumber towns. Yes. And now all that lumber is gone. So according to legend, when people disappeared, when, specifically when lumberjacks disappeared in the snow, it was attributed to the snow wasset eating them. Because that was the only logical explanation. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. wait. Do, we, do we have like the etymology of the word wasset? Do we know what that means? I I specifically don't have the exact etymology, but it's said to be kind of weasel-like. So I imagine it's coming from like a weasel-type creature. Okay. And this is like a white people legend. I think so. It sounds like, I, I, <laughs> it sounds I, like something we'd come up with. I think so. And the reason I say I think so is because Native Americans do come into play in a second. Okay. I keep interrupting. Sorry. So, I mentioned this earlier, too, but it's said to be four times larger than a wolverine, but 40 times as active. 
mm-hmm. which means it has to constantly be eating in wintertime. Sure. It's constantly hunting. So if you spot anything moving in the snow that's huge, it's probably because it's hunting. Supposedly. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the only specimen of this beast that was ever examined by white men was an incomplete corpse of one on James Bay. They found one? Maybe. (laughs) Is this like how people found a mermaid, but it ended up just being like a dead raccoon? You can be the judge. So people who were just around the area saw a Native American in a odd-looking canoe on the water. When they examined it, it appeared to be made out of the hide of a giant creature that was stretched into a perfect canoe shape. It was white, just like the snow wasset is supposed to be in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. And the pelt was like black, like most animals are, especially in this area, like a polar bear or most bears in general have mm-hmm. black skin. There were no leg holes in this pelt and it was perfectly adapted into the shape needed, and it was said to also be used as a sled by the Native Americans, too. So did they ever think to, like, go up to them and be like, hey, so what's that made out of? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> because that could have solved a lot of problems. I see when I when I read this, I thought maybe it's just like a freaking birch tree. That's canoe. what it sounds like to me. Like yeah, a- I don't know. <laughs> um, I have one last thing. About the snow wasset, and it's mm-hmm. how to capture one. Mm. So, if you take dead falls, it's like I imagine it's just any sort of fallen tree, mm-hmm. put them in an entire ring around the snow, and you have to organize a trap where if it goes anywhere in that circle, you can trigger the trap so dozens of logs fall on top of it. supposedly killing it okay so you can't live trap this bad boy that we know of well it could kill it but it could just pin it too sure sure. because it's massive Mm -hmm. either four times as large as a wolverine but i've seen other ones where it's like hundreds of feet long too because a wolverine's not that big okay but you have to set up a ring of dead trees large enough to trap something yeah. It could potentially be hundreds of feet. That's a lot of work. It, it's most commonly said to be four times as large as a wolverine. So I just equate that to be the size of a small bear. Yeah. But okay. a tube shaped because it's a worm, a mammalian worm. Yeah. Yeah. I want, why dead trees? Can't we get a net or a lasso Mm-mm. of sorts? Too fast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You got to just have a bunch of logs ready to fall into the snow I all at once. I just feel like a net would be a faster than waiting for gravity. It can eat through anything, I imagine. But not trees? Well, if it's something that just strikes it, it might knock it out or just pin it down. Okay. All right. I'm going to trust you on this one. Those are my worms. Those are my worm tails. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. I think, I just think it's funny that like, I mean, I wouldn't call this last one necessarily a worm. Well, it, it, it acts the same way as the other ones though, where it burrows and like travels quickly underground. Yeah. Like, what do you think the source of that is? Like we've talked about in our vampire episode, there's plenty of things that could be attributed 
to being the source of the vampire legend, like specific illnesses being explained as vampires because like human knowledge of certain illnesses was not adequate at the time. So they came up with like the most reasonable explanation in their minds. Mm -hmm. What is it about humans around the world Mm. that would make them fear essentially a giant worm Although in different formats around the world, I'm, I'm going to equate this to the the argument that I've been seeing a lot lately about capitalism versus post capitalism. <laughs> okay. So these vampire legends are prehistoric legends. Yes, a lot of them are very very old. We're in a post intelligence <laughs> era where we've been sentient and able to record history for thousands of years now. Sure. We need new stories. What's scarier than a giant burrowing snake-like creature? Yeah, but the cool thing about vampire stories is that they've persisted until today. We're, how? I just, I can't imagine. <laughs> They're spooky stories, That's Colleen. true. I really That's like them. I just, I just want to know, like, I, I think that what I said at the beginning, worms are so far removed from our body experience as human beings. That that's if why you, it'll be if you hear that thumping in the background, that's our dog. Yeah, I'm sorry, she's the worst. That's all I had for worms. All right. If you have a worm tale, definitely let us know about any kind of worm. Large worms. Don't talk about regular. No, you can tell. Worms. You can tell if you have a spooky story about regular worms. You can send it. That's over. true. Yes, actually, if it's spooky and worms <laughs> are involved, let us know. I'm in a worm mood today, <laughs> so send me your worms, not actual worms, but send me your worm tales. Your worm tales. Well, I'm about to come. Sorry you're in a worm mood, because we're about to completely pivot. 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 Last week, we told you that a magic practitioner contacted us and asked if we would want to know anything about magic, magic essentially. Yeah. Or how to get into magic, what it's like being a mad- magic practitioner in the world. I don't want to call them like a witch or a wizard. They referred to themselves as a magician. A magician. Okay. No, not like the magician of like, you know, <laughs> Have like a dad and a rabbit. Right. But they said that they're a magician. Okay. So I will refer to them as a magician. Of course, when we reached or we read this email, we were like, um, fuck yes. We would like to hear from a real magician. Mm-hmm. So... We came up with a large list of questions because who doesn't have a billion questions for somebody who practices magic? Yeah. And they responded with very thorough answers. I will not have time to read all of them, but I picked out some some interesting ones. And and they didn't give us their name. They were they wished to remain anonymous, which is perfectly fine i just wanted to say i apologize we're not going to get to all of the answers for our questions just because you were so detailed yeah and we appreciate it but uh we can't fit it in i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) well my first questions to them were basic ones like were you raised in a magical magic practicing household yeah and if you weren't like i imagine most people aren't how did you come to get into magic? Right. Like, what's your what's your story? Right. And they said they were not raised in a magical household, but 
when they were a child, spirits would communicate with them consistently. The first spirit they spoke to was God, capital G. I will say this. The Abrahamic God. I believe so. This magician refers to God a lot. God and angels and demons. There's a lot of like Judeo-Christian imagery right. in his So that's what responses. I mean, though, the Abrahamic God of like G- Hebrew, Christianity, Islam, that God. Not necessarily a, the Judeo-Christian God, but it seems like a very similar concept, which is interesting because as somebody raised in a Christian household, we were always taught magic is evil. Magic is a or sin. Essentially, magic doesn't exist. God well, can do miracles. But well, I think I, I guess it depends on what area of the Bible you're reading. Sometimes they'll say yes, magic does exist, right. but it's well, that's not if you're bi- you biblical, like liter, like you take it literally. Right. Whereas the Catholicism that I feel like I was raised in was like, of course, magic's not real. God can do miracles, but like we can't. Magic's not just a thing you can tap into. But we digress. But yes, we digress. Anyways, I just thought it was very interesting that um, this person really draws on that sort of Judeo-Christian iconography while also practicing magic. Right, right. I just thought that was really cool. So the first spirit that they communicated with was God. And when they were eight years old, they prepared for bed and turned the light off. And then... They jumped into bed and gazed through their window at the stars, focused their attention on one, and thought, God, do you really exist? And at that second, light turned back on by itself. Oh, in their room. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And they freaked out, and they ran out of their room. But they say they they weren't feeling threatened. It was just unexpected. Sure. But that was like the beginning of feeling a magical connection, I suppose, or at least communicating with spirits. Sure. And feeling that there are spirits amongst us. So my next question was, do you have any specific magical training? Because how do you... Where where do you start? At what point do you become, like, say, yes, I'm a magician? Right. As opposed to, I'm interested in learning about magic. They said that they trained themselves using grimoire texts and looking at historical manuals that were used by magicians. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know what a grimoire is, it's just a collection of magical writing. So yeah. like a witch could write one or a, a shaman. Book, kind of. Kind of, yeah. It's interesting. They say some of the claims of these magicians are not necessarily true. So I have to test each manual on its own merits. The only way to judge the quality of a grimoire is through its demonstrable results. Mm -hmm. So they must do a lot of experimenting, you know, like, yes, this works. No, this doesn't work. And then if the majority of things in a grimoire don't work, you're like, ah, this is crap. I'm going to move on to the next one. Right. Cool. I asked if they followed any specific religious or spiritual paths. They didn't specify like a recognizable religion they just said magic inspired a respect for religion and that dealing with spirits they take the quality of their own spirit very seriously Hmm. okay so what kind of magic are we talking what let's get into the nitty-gritty what kind of magic do you perform the most 
They say that they use a wide range of techniques and they work with talismans, necromancy, demon conjuration, and some angel work. They are not drawn to any particular system, but they're interested in results. So they'll use different kinds of magic, such as Greek, Egyptian, or Salomnic. Solomonic. Solomon. Ick. Solomonic. No, I can't say it. (laughs) Solomonic, maybe? Sure. If a manuscript claims that a demon will visibly appear if I do X, Y, and Z, then I expect that to occur. If I work the grimoire thoroughly and nothing happens, then I consider the manuscript bunk. The Necronomicon is an example of a bunk grimoire. It's pure fiction. That's kind of disappointing. I mean, did you expect anything but that, though? I feel like the most popular examples of yeah, I feel like are usually the l- ones that are like pop culture. Yeah, because I mean, if it was real a lot of people would probably be practicing magic. Right. Um, The spells they perform the most are talismans because they're easy and convenient and they often work. But you have to understand that we're dealing with spirits, many of them angelic. Therefore, if the spirits decide that my request isn't appropriate, then it might not occur. For example, if someone is lazy and refuses to get a job, then doing a talisman for making money might not be effective. The spirits may think, Just get a job, loser. The spirits are charitable and compassionate, but they won't tolerate laziness or disrespect. This often accounts for why some people's magic ends up failing. Mm. And that's another thing that I found interesting about this person's answers is um, when they do describe God or these kinds of spirits, they're benevolent. Um, They describe God as like pure love. And I just, I think that's interesting. Like, what, I should have asked, like, what is it that gives you that idea? Right. Of, like, an all-loving, all-knowing God in the Christian sense, as opposed to just Just a a creator. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also interesting that they work not only with angels and God, but also demons, too. Yeah. I wonder what their purpose is. Like, what are they trying to accomplish? I'm not sure. So yeah, we didn't get the opportunity to kind of do a back and forth with follow up uh, questions and answers. Yeah, this is our original Q&A. Yes. I asked if they have a code of ethics and they said they would never harm anyone outright, but they might be interested in causing nightmares if someone mm. has wronged them, but not like to scare them, to explain to them the wrongness of their behavior. Mm, a little mischief, but with... Good intentions. Right. But they do say that they know of magicians that do not follow that same code and are happy to curse somebody until the end of time, which is horrifying. Because what if you were, like, mean to somebody at a store once and you didn't know that they were an all-powerful magician who's, like, willing to curse you? And then you get cursed until the end of time and, like, you didn't even know this person. That's why you got to be nice to your waiters. That's right. Mm Mm-hmm. I asked what kind of texts they used and what sorts of things you need to perform magic. And they said that the texts, a lot of them, can be found on Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Interesting. (laughs) Um, I don't know how to pronounce this one. Gotia? The Gotia? G-O-E-T-I-A. I don't know either. It's a fully legitimate text with some missing pieces, but it is workable. So if anyone wants to research magic 
on their own. This person says that you might get results from that one. Cool. People need to realize that conjuring spirits is exorcism. It's not something that happens on the first try. It might take hours and hours of work nonstop conjuring or even threatening spirits if they disobey. Humans apparently are entitled to do this because the spirits have disobeyed God at some point, and therefore part of their punishment is being obedient to purified humans. If they disobey, they are liable for punishment. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it's, it's like going with the mentality that's in the Old Testament of angels are created to serve humans and demons and Lucifer are fallen angels, so they're even lesser than angels. So yeah. it's on the hierarchy, it's God, then humans, then angels, then demons. No, because um, they state later that angels tend to like boss demons around and tell them what to do on Earth. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, angels are above demons. But I don't necessarily feel like they're saying that humans are above angels. Oh, okay. Either way, back to how to perform magic. You don't need anything to perform magic except for determination, determination, humility, and faith. The Egyptians and Greeks called spirits in the names of gods. In the Solomonic tradition, the spirits are called in the name of God, specifically the God Elohim, El Shaddai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. They use a variety of tools like swords, wands, circles on the floor, censers, symbols of God, like the pentagram and hexagram. The magician John D. used a simple system of a crystal ball until the angels instructed him in Enochian magic. Ooh. In your experience, is everyone capable of performing magic is the next question I ask, because Mm -hmm. I have never been contacted by a spirit. Sure. So it seems like, am I not open to it or do I not have like the sensory ability to? Or you're just unlucky. Or I'm unlucky. They said that magic is about technique and technique comes from principles of the spirit realm. The two realms, material and spiritual, are not different spatially and they overlap each other. Everyone can perform magic if they do the right things at the right time, and each system of magic is slightly different in their requirements. Demons are not how the church has depicted them. A lot of that nonsense is for propaganda interests. That makes sense to me. Like how... Right, so it seems to me like they're kind of using demon and spirit interchangeably, but demon has a negative connotation as opposed to angel. Or maybe just a lesser connotation. Yeah, potentially. I asked if magic was their full-time job. Like, do they sell True. talismans? And, yeah, maybe you have, like, an Etsy shop or something. Well, no, not even that. But, like, you could, you know, do you read tarot for people or, like, yeah. sell curses or sure. spells? They said that um, they have a regular job. They're relatively normal. And you wouldn't expect them to be a magician if you saw them. They don't belong to a coven or anything. They're solo practitioner. But they have contacts. They say that if you look wide enough, there's a spiritual revival in the occult in general happening across the world. And this includes new interpretation of scripture, greater interest in mysticism, and a general call for people to return to spirituality. But it's difficult for people to get into magic because those sorts of communities have a lot of gatekeepers. They said 
gatekeeper is a word I reluctantly use, but they're more interested in preventing people from understanding magic and building up their own priesthood, which makes sense. Human greed. Well, and I can get that too. And I mean, for centuries now, maybe even millennia, like these older traditions of like traditional magic among your culture, you want to like, you know, hold that close. You don't want people to take what's yours. Right. And magic is power. And why would you want other people to have that? (laughs) Well, very true also. But I'm just thinking from a cultural perspective, too. Like, you don't want someone to, like, you know, travel. Like, like, for example, me, if I were to travel to Japan and get into, like, you know, Japanese mysticism. Like, I'm sure a lot of people in Japan would be upset if I did that because I'm taking their culture. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. My next question is, which spells are most effective? The most effective spells are the ones done well. I guess it's true of everything. So many younger new magicians want to cut corners to make it easier. Everyone is writing books on how to do magic, and they all pretty much suck because they water everything down. My favorite are talismans because they're convenient, effective, and safe. You won't have to deal with a monster howling at you like you do with demon conjuration. Don't get me wrong, most of the demons are very intelligent, articulate, and respectful if the conjuration is done right. They don't want to show up, but when they do, they're often pretty okay to deal with. The spirits in the Gotia are a mix between demons, dead magicians, war generals, and pagan gods. Hmm. Now, how would someone who is interested begin to learn magic or witchcraft? Yeah, where do you start? They recommend Gemma Gary's books. She's fabulous, entertaining, and thoroughly knowledgeable. And the book The Cunning Man's Handbook is a good start into low-level magic. For legitimate magic, pick up a copy of Jordan Peterson's new book, which is coming out. You can tell that this is not our forte. (laughs) Yes, of course. This This is what I wanted to know about This is why we asked the questions. They warn that people should be careful. Magic is not without risks, even attempting to work with angels. Not all angels are approachable. Do you want to talk to the angel of death? He's the first one I conjured successfully, and the first thing I heard to announce his presence was a man screaming. So be careful. They say the key to any incantation or prayer or conjuration is meaning what you say. You can't just read off a conjuration like they do in the movies. Right. There has to be an emotional charge to it. Like if you were poor and about to lose your house, your prayers would be potent. There would be sincerity in your mind and your soul. And that's how you need to approach magic, essentially. Because you need to believe that it can happen and you need to have a legitimate sincerity for the reasons yeah, the, behind the, it. the faith and in, intent. It's not just the knowledge, but it's the the will to do it. Mm-hmm. One thing that I really liked about this person is that they called new magicians abracadablers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that too. <laughs> okay, then they get into a simple spell. And this is a spell for something we could all use. Free food. Okay. One, purify yourself by water fasting for three days. That's a, whoa. I mean, that's a lot of days to go without food. Like, I I don't do well with fasting, so at that point, anything would be food to me. <laughs> okay, step one, purify. Step two, accept any food that is offered to you. 
I kid you not, I've been doing magic for six years and every single damn time I try to fast, my boss orders us lunch or my favorite restaurant sends me a coupon or my friends make me dessert or something. This is normal. Spirits will often tempt the magician during his purification to derail his conjuration. So if you want free food, just fast a bunch. Huh. That's interesting. I like it. It's practical. It is very practical. Like, it's not, you're not expecting a burger to come out of thin air. You are willing the energy in the world to manipulate the circumstances around you to provide you with food. Hmm. It's pretty cool. Here's just a couple important points they say. The Catholic Church does not have a monopoly on the supernatural. The world needs to wake up and realize that we don't become spirits. We are spirits now. Interesting. Hmm. Demons are not your friends. Magic is real, but it takes hard work. The gotia is fully legitimate, but pieces are missing. And if you want your spells to have more impact, then you need to purify better by cutting out the internet, television, food, caffeine, time with friends, social media, and detaching from your body with two hours of meditation a day. Rely on authentic source material and research your sources. Remember that all magic ultimately comes from understanding how the material world influences the spiritual world. Now, I skipped a lot of questions with good answers, and their answers were, like, amazingly detailed. Um, but I didn't want to get into all of them. However, they did send a follow-up email with some practical advice for some of us little spooky listeners who may or may not live in a haunted house. Ooh. Tips for people living in haunted houses from a real magician. One, read the seven penitential psalms, particularly Psalm 51. Recite Psalm 51 at noon and midnight for seven days. Two, get a devout priest to do a house exercising and then a house blessing afterwards. Three, fast for three to five days and pray the psalms. Four, say prayers to Archangels Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel. Five, Get some asafetida and burn it throughout the house. Afterwards, burn frankincense resin while praying to Michael and repeating the psalms. Six, if things are getting worse, try cutting up fruits and burying them at the four directions around the property in this order. East, west, north, south. I think what I find most fascinating about this person's um, practice. practice is the mix between prayer and magic and that it's not necessarily self-manifested but you're you're asking god and spirits to provide something for you and i think it's interesting too the combination of like abrahamic religions and magic yeah because that's not something that's super common at least i haven't been exposed to that because it's usually that i've seen pagan uh, religions that are the ones that are magic practitioners. Mm -hmm. Well, because I guess, and again, the way we were raised as Catholics is that you are supposed to put all of your trust and faith in the one true God who should be the one who's able to perform miracles. And you do not have that power because you are not God. Right. Whereas adding magic to that kind of insinuates that there's like a, not as much of a need for God. 
Yeah, I guess you could say that. Or certain, I don't know. It's interesting. Rituals. I mean, even like religions that focus on a single God have always had rituals. And what is a ritual but like belief that something's going to happen from it, right? Yeah. I don't know. That's what magic is. Fascinating stuff. If we got any other magicians, witches, warlocks, have you ever cursed anyone? <laughs> Why? Yeah, and how and uh, how is your practice too? If you wanted to do a similar series of questions, definitely feel free to reach out. Yeah. Um and thank you to the person yeah, who answered all these you very questions. Much. That was very cool. Yes, and I didn't I didn't even scratch the surface. So I'm sorry we didn't get to read all of the answers, but thanks. Yeah. So if you want to send us anything or if you have a episode topic request or if you have your own spooky tale you would like us to read on the podcast, send it over. You can send it to Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or at NerdslothHQ. Or you can email us at podcast at nerdsloth.com. Send us your worm stories, your magic stories, your spooky stories, your ghost stories. Yeah. And we will be taking a break for the holiday next week in America, Thanksgiving. Yes, <laughs> Thanksgiving I know we have holiday. some international listeners. Um, but yeah, we will be taking a break next week, and we will be back in two weeks with a new episode. With something spicy. Yeah. So we'll see you next time. All right. We love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Presented by NerdSloth. A place for lazy nerds. If you like what you heard, consider donating at patreon.com slash nerdsloth so we can continue bringing you quality shows. Be sure to also leave us a review and share your favorite episodes and clips on social media. If you're looking for more content, visit us at nerdsloth.com.